ready for the interview And if you get a cue live on the laptop Watch what I'm gonna do Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto Real talk, pronto, doctor, D, PhD, hit the intro Hold up, wait, gotta be social Network, global, a home for the locals Gotta be social Network, global, a home for the locals across your profile on matchmaker.fm and no I, it's not a dating site everyone it sounds like it's a place for podcasters and guests meet it's a whole thing i was actually trying to like um just as i was like confirming the details in my mind and looking also for like previous um episodes you had recommended i navigated back to matchmaker.fm to um to revisit our initial message thread and when i put in matchmaker on google <laughs> Matchmaker FM, the podcast connecting network is not the first thing that comes up. Um, sidebar, did you guys know that there's still a lot of matchmaking businesses <laughs> in the central Ohio area and they seem to be doing very well for themselves? Really? Wow. Very interesting. So. Hmm. That's how we came to be connected. And Brianna's work or topic or interest history is very fascinating i believe we we're talking like global war on drugs that's a big mm -hmm. part of it uh, i was like man i have to know about this <laughs> and your perspective so kind of okay. take us we're going to go backwards in your mm -hmm. interest in this how this began oh my gosh okay um so to give like the the opening like introductory speech spiel. My name is Brianna Mendoza. I'm a PhD candidate at, in history at the Ohio State. The University. Ohio State. University. The Ohio State University. Yeah. Apparently, it was a very pro protracted, prolonged legal case to get that the exclusively <laughs> connected to Ohio State University. Yes. Um, but um, I. So I'm a PhD candidate, which means I'm basically like, I'm like three fourths of the way there. I've done like the hard part, which is like read all the books, take all the notes, do all that. And um, I'm writing the dissertation. I study um, US Latin American foreign relations during the 20th century. I am certified to teach classes on the modern United States, on modern Latin America, modern Mexico, the Mexican Revolution, the Cold War from both um, a Latin Americanist, a US and a global perspective. My interests are very wide ranging and I really enjoy um, studying at sort of the intersections of, of time periods, of, of geographic locations, of cultures. Um, as to how I arrived at this place, um, that's such a good question. And the like, uh, the like basic answer is that I've always been a history nerd. So I've been okay. doing like history projects since I was literally like 10 years old. There's this program in the United States called um, History Day. It's an academic competition like Academic Decathlon or like Science Olympiad, but it's all about history. There's all these different categories and essentially it's just encouraging kids to do um, not just like learn about dates and facts, but to do actual historical research. So like my first history project ever was about this the first woman explorer in Latin America, which now looking back on that project at, at 28 and <laughs> decades of history education later, the first 
white woman explorer mm. of Latin America, Harriet Chalmers Adams. We got to look at her like original scrapbooks and all this stuff. So um, I've always loved history, but even from a very young age, I was like doing history. Like yeah. I understood that history was not the names and the same faces and the dates, but that it was actual like the the sort of like catchphrase for the perspective for the profession is um history is change over time mm. but there's a very tangible tactile aspect to that which is just things that people have left behind people's memories um their collections um so i kind of just i've always loved it um i'm also an incredibly lazy person and history really? was always just like the easy thing in school as opposed <laughs> to like science and math I'm a big like I'm a, like a big ideas person I'm not yeah. like a minute details person so history was just always my thing and I got to college and you know I like humored my family who really wants me of course to do well you know, materially, financially be, sure. be secure and comfortable in life. And so I pretended like maybe I would be pre-med or pre-law or something. <laughs> you pretended, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I would like gave like lip service to it. I was like, maybe, but by like the first semester of my sophomore year, I had, I had declared history as my major at California State University, Fresno. Go CSU system. It's so awesome. It's fucking awesome. It's great. <laughs> Love it. And um, a wonderful school that I was not thrilled to attend because it's in my hometown. Oh, yes. Um, but I can't believe how well that history department uh, prepared me for graduate school. So shout out Lori Clune, shout out William Scubin for teaching me everything shout I need. Shout out. No. <laughs> also, Lori Clune has an amazing book about um, the Rosenbergs and the international response to the execution of the of, of the Rosenbergs. Oh, okay. Check that out. Oxford University Press. It's amazing. Um, anyways, and then in college, um, I took two classes that probably set me on my life my even more specific path than like the study of history. Yeah. I took a, um, a social revolutions in Latin America course, and I took a US Latin American foreign relations course. And um, from there, I, um, I just kind of ran with it. I never really looked back. And I think this is a great place to say that I'm a very political person. And one of the reasons that I really love history is that I feel like, studying the past just really helps me understand the world around me today and how we got to Most this definitely in the world today yeah yes. and so I felt especially like I mean it's in the case everywhere for anyone who does modern U.S. history or does the history of U.S. foreign relations you know you can kind of unfortunately substitute geographic locations but you see kind of the same patterns and you see just such interesting um continuities of logic and of not of like a national the national project of the United States mm -hmm. and of American culture throughout time and I find that absolutely fascinating I'm also um half Mexican so um this was actually like the first time even growing up in California in Fresno which is I think by now there's a duality if not a majority yeah, Latino population um, never really learning anything about Latin American history, about Mexican history until I got to college and then more into graduate school. And it was just fascinating, these sort of social movements um, and the organization and 
the instability, um, which is like very foreign to us here in the United States, I would say, but that also I think is kind of a indicator of just like this very interesting sort of um, ongoing negotiation between your sort of like masses and then the established, the sort of the inheritors of the colonial state. Yeah. I'm getting into the weeds here. No, I like it. I actually think it's really good. Be <laughs> you know, I was thinking about, I was thinking about our episode because I was, I've been trying to get through Exterminate All the Brutes on HBO Max and okay. about colonialism, imperialism, imperialism and the whole thing. It's hard to watch because it's like, it's so raw learning the history. Of What's it called? Exterminate All the Brutes. Is that a, is it a documentary, a series? It's a, a four-part like documentary by Raoul Peck. Oh, uh, I really want to watch that. I'm telling you as a historian, it's like a must watch, I would imagine. I love it. And I love like, a documentary, I do. And it's hardcore history, like super disturbing images. Give me the footage as real as possible. Yeah. You know, it's, it's essentially about, you know, a colonialism and imperialism and slavery mm -hmm. and how it's repeated in different countries. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. And uh, I was like, I, I want to get to this before I talk to Brianna. <laughs> like, <laughs> I barely got through it. I was like, this is a heavy lift, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a lot. Um, it is, I'm not going to pretend that I'm like a brave individual or like anything like that for, yeah. for choosing to move through life with sort of these blinders off, but it, it is what I have chosen. And, you know, I, I, um, as someone who continues to sort of reflect on her mental health and her mental state, um, mm -hmm. there's no doubt that doing that definitely just makes optimism a little harder hopefulness yeah. a little more challenging but none of that ever dampens or takes away from the beauty of human stories yeah and the resilience and like i sometimes like it's it's really easy to get caught up in the horror that has happened and i think also it's really amazing to find those little stories within a resistance of resilience of community building um and sometimes like you know it's just like wow like you made it through and it was hard but you were here um it's just it's it's really something and um i just the more that i learn <laughs> the more that i realize i will never know um oh. ever so it's a very humbling experience I think. yeah yeah mm -hmm. most most definitely so as you're on your journey in history and now you're, you know, man. I oh my gosh! Wait, 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 wait! I have to finish the story. I didn't even oh, get to yeah. the drug part. This is the I tangent. The drug part. This I'll, is the I'll, tangent she was saying. I'll keep about. it. I'll keep it super short. Um. So essentially, I got pulled into like studying drugs. Um. Or like how how um the United States has interacted with Latin American countries mm -hmm. over the issues of drugs because like I found this like document or this mention about. I think it was like a committee hearing. I think it was a Senate. It, it's it's a congressional hearing about supposed alleged Cuban involvement in drug trafficking mm -hmm. and what that means in context of the Cold War, right? Because okay. it's one thing today in 2021 if drugs are coming in because we think of drugs, substances as inherently bad, but it's a completely different thing if it's in the 1980s. Yes. If we have reinvigorated the Cold War and it's specifically Cuba, if drugs are specifically coming from Cuba, because not only are people using drugs, um, which we can definitely talk about like why that is or is not an issue, but 
communists are enabling the uses of drugs and the sale of drugs. And that's a big issue for the United States. Yeah, yeah. Because in the US logic, drugs enable the undermining of sort of the democratic capitalist project. Hmm. It makes people not want to work as much. You know, it sort of cuts down on worker productivity. It might even threaten national security because remember, a lot of US defense contracts um, are held by private companies. So it's really important that the private workforce stays as productive as possible. Hmm. And if Cuban communist drugs are coming in, let me tell you, that's a big threat to national security. If right. if drug if workers who are 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 laboring on defense contracts are using these drugs. So it's sort of this sort of really interesting like mental gymnastics and these very slippery categories of like yeah. these sort of multi multi-layered fear of like why drugs are bad. And that's that's what I'm interested in. Yeah, I'm I'm a little less honestly, I'm a little less versed on like what's going on today <laughs> in terms of this. I definitely can like speculate. Um mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about these questions, of course, but my interests truly lie in this sort of almost double speak, I guess, to use mm. the word of, you know, communists meaning drugs and sometimes drugs meaning communists and traffickers meaning drug traffickers, but also sometimes like communist insurgents in places like Peru and Colombia and Indonesia. So it's this very interesting like web. Anyways, that sucked me in. I'm going on like 10 years of studying this specific topic. It's wild. Wow. Um, but yeah, that's how I got here. Anyways. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, I think it provides a lot of foundation for yeah. what you're into. And it, yeah. it makes me think of kind of this, you kind of talked about, well, like, I don't know much about this aspect, but I do know about kind of this double speak aspect. I think we're coming into a time where discussion on the war on drugs is there's a lot of sentiment on, did it work or did it not mm. work? And I see a lot of sentiment of like, this was a complete failure. Your mm -hmm. thoughts? Yeah, yeah. So I definitely fall into the drug, the war on drugs is, is a failure. And I should probably say um, at this nice little junction uh, that my views are not necessarily those of the Ohio State University or origins, current events and historical yep, perspective yep. for whom I work. Yep. Um, but yeah, I definitely um, think that the war on drugs was a failure um, for multiple reasons, but we can start with like the most obvious logic. So imagine if like World War II had been a war on Nazism and not just a war against the Nazis, right? Like technically we would still be in World War II. So I kind of think of like a war on drugs in the same way. It's a lot harder to win a war against like a category yeah, or like a concept than it is like against a specific sort of like military, right? And especially with um, the nature of drug trafficking being as decentralized and diffuse as it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's, there's this really interesting concept called the um, the balloon effect. And the idea is that even if you manage to sort of clamp down on drug trafficking and production in one area, it kind of just shifts elsewhere because there's always people like for a couple of reasons, if you're looking at somewhere like the Andean region, that would be Peru, Bolivia, Colombia. Um, and then of course the sort of very Eastern, um, sorry, western tip of brazil it's just it's an area where historically um 
very dense forest along with very mountainous, it's really hard for states to extend their territory or extend their authority into yeah. these territories, which is why it's so easy when you focus all your resource on one area for it to just sort of like pack up and move to another one. So I think that like, not only does the logic of a war on drugs not make sense, but also I'm not convinced that <laughs> um, the United States, not just the United States, but like sort of like Western nations have advanced beyond the idea of sort of like a traditional military conflict of sort of yes. um, <laughs> strategy and like meeting each other at like the battle lines. Oh, right. drug trafficking operations are a lot more like guerrilla warfare, you know, like that's you see right. in Vietnam. Um, and that's why it's so hard is that we're um, not only are we not um, well versed in those tactics, but um, in the post Vietnam era, the idea of sending troops in to a battle zone is very unpopular. Um, we see this with Afghanistan and arguably even why a reason why things didn't go as well, right? Because we simply with a guerrilla style war, you just require more personnel to win. So I, I really don't think that while we were able to like throw tons of money at it and tons of economic resources at it, there's just never the manpower. Yeah. Um, especially when you look at sort of um, the corruption in Latin America and when you look at um, the money in those states and also, <laughs> there's a really long history of the United States having to actively convince other countries to care about drugs in the way that the U.S. does. Hmm. That's not an assumed thing. I think that explain like, that a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so in March, 2020, I no, in February, 2020, <laughs> I was in Mexico city doing research uh, for my dissertation. Um, and then I got recalled because of COVID and then I got home and I got COVID, but I was on that research right. trip, um, because I had seen in the U S side of the documents and research at the national archives, at the Nixon library, at the Reagan presidential library, this really interesting sort of pattern of discussion, like, um, whether it be a national security council meeting or just sort of like the president's like advisory board on like drugs and domestic issues that, <laughs> They're like, how are we going? So like drugs are an issue and we really want to do something about this. And we specifically think that heroin is an issue. Let's say like in the 1970s, the big, the big drug of concern is heroin. Right. But Mexico, Mexico doesn't really think that's their problem because it's US citizens that are using and buying the drugs. It's not Mexican citizens. Furthermore, Mexico is actually more concerned about marijuana usage in its country. And like, that's also an issue, but heroin is what we're concerned about. So what can we do to convince Mexico that heroin is an issue? How do we get them on board with targeting and cracking down on heroin trafficking systems? Let's maybe send in some people to do a study in Mexico on heroin usage. So like, there's this really interesting, just sort of like, pattern and logic of like sort of <clears throat> almost like starting in the at the conclusion and like working backwards but not just like in a like I want to get to the bottom of this issue it's yeah. the how do we get this other country whose conclusion is perhaps over here but we want them over here so how do we get them over here um how did I get on this topic? What was <laughs> I want to, we said in the Europe, 
you know, different countries view drugs differently than the U.S. Yeah. Why don't you explain oh, yes. a little bit okay. more on that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just, um, I think that Americans still today too tend to like assume that like it's weird when people think differently from us or like <laughs> differently from us, right? Sure. So they're like, obviously, we're right about this, and this is like our goal is to like do more action against like heroin trafficking and heroin coming into the United States. But Mexico like disagrees (laughs) on that. And also like the data doesn't necessarily show that like heroin usage in Mexico is an issue. So how are we going to convince Mexico to like worry about heroin? Yeah. Right. When meanwhile, Mexico is like, I mean, our people aren't really using heroin. It's really marijuana that that we Mm. would like to worry about. So it's really interesting to like, reading like the newspaper articles and like the Mexican newspapers versus the U.S. newspapers, mm. Mexico definitely tends to talk about marijuana a little bit more. Yeah. The United States is worried about heroin. It's interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. This is very interesting how different countries see things. What is your take on, it was, you know, another thing I, I, I specifically want to talk to because I had a former DEA agent uh, on Larry Forletta, really nice guy. And I talked to him about the legalization aspect of drugs. Yeah, and, I mean, as you probably can imagine, he's not into it, um, but he was. I, into- recall, I did listen to the episode. I think he's very much yeah. in, in favor of medical marijuana. But he is in favor of medical. That was like his one thing. He was like, I changed on that. And listen, that's his opinion, whatever. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's how he sees things. But I was like, OK, I want to see from your perspective and studying the history of this. Mm-hmm. What is the what is your thoughts about that? What are your thoughts? So I'll start by saying that historians tend to think that (laughs) everything that is the way it is for a very particular reason, like we think about things the way that we do for a very particular reason, Mm -hmm. right? Like why are women's nipples on the internet way less (laughs) acceptable than like men's nipples, you know, like there's, right? Like you can look at sort of the longer history of the demonization and fear of women and women's bodies specifically. Yeah. We think the same way about drugs. And if you listen to my podcast coming out, hopefully the third week in September to coincide with the 52nd uh, anniversary of Operation Intercept, we can talk about that later. Um, I had one guest, Dr. Isaac Campos, who -hmm. wrote an excellent book about the history of marijuana in Mexico. And he um, sort of was talking about how We don't necessarily understand um, the sort of psychological effects on drugs, of drugs, and we don't necessarily understand that we have chosen to demonize, essentially, (laughs) certain different mental states, right, that drugs can induce. Um, So I personally tend to think that the question of like the morality of the usage of drugs is kind of a weird one. Like it's just, it, it alters your mental state, right? Now the effects that it can have and the things that it can lead you to do, right? That's where we get into sort of this more like moral gray area. If people are so addicted that they have to steal, you know, to fund drug usage. Now I, um, I also think about this question from the perspective of like alcohol is legal, uh, caffeine is legal, 
a lot of drugs are legal in terms of pharmaceutical applications. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually think that um, we should work our way towards legalizing all drugs. Um, Because based on those three examples that I just named, we know that if we are allowed to study and learn about the effects of drugs on different people and how they interact with different sort of brain chemistries, for example, that we can instruct people how to take drugs safely and effectively. (sighs) I don't see why drugs cannot be a balanced part of life. Yeah. And I definitely, I'm really glad that people are coming around to the pharmaceutical application of things like marijuana and Mm -hmm. um, psychedelics. Now, my concern is that we'll stop at sort of like the medical legalization Mm -hmm. because like we always have to have like a justification, like a moral justification in the United States, right? For the use of drugs and medical applications (laughs) is is fine. But the problem is not everyone in our country has access to medical insurance or to even a doctor to get a medical marijuana prescription. Further, there are very specific categories. I mean, I live in Ohio. There are very specific categories currently of of, um, um, afflictions that medical marijuana can be authorized for, you know? And I'm a person with anxiety and you know what? I can't get a medical marijuana card in Ohio, um, even though, you know, that might help. Um, So I just continue... My fear, even though it's a really exciting time to be talking about the legalization of marijuana, my fear is that the war on drugs will actually just sort of reconfigure itself. Really? Yeah. I think it, I think it very much might. I never heard that mindset. Yeah. If you can't access medical marijuana, if we stop there, where are you going to get your drugs from? (laughs) You're going to get them you know, from the black market. And also you're going to be seriously at risk for the horrible, horrible effects of fentanyl. Right. If we legalize the drugs, or at the very least, if we decriminalize drugs and increase access, to safe use literature, if we have ways to test the drugs, you know, like, I think that it brings it down a little bit. I'm not saying that I want everyone to be high all of the time and like no. off their walker. That's actually just like people. I mean, like we know that binge drinking is horribly, horribly, horribly bad for your health. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's the same when it comes to heroin, morphine, yes. cocaine, <laughs> you know? So I just, I, I really would like to push back against this sort of all or nothing. Yeah. This aspect this all or nothing theme that seems to sort of run underneath the like legalization debate because I don't think it's going to be open season on our kids or anything like that I think that actually when we learn about these substances when we learn what they do when we learn how they affect us when we learn how to use them safely and in moderation like that's okay (laughs) I think that's okay I think it's Um, okay too actually I I've talked about this quite a bit on this and that's why I was kind of like, I want to hear your take on it. I'm curious about it. I think that humans want to alter their mind state. I Mm -hmm. think, I think it's a very innate thing. People want to tap into different aspects of their, 
mental state of their consciousness. The problem I see is that many humans have lost the ritual of drug taking, of responsible mm-hmm. drug taking. So they, yeah. it's essentially that ritual could be, you know, and I, I think people will hear this and they're thinking ritual, like very old, ancient, mm-hmm. or yes, on some level, but on a more modern take is a ritual of taking drugs is on some level, let's say it's marijuana is who are you around? Where are you mm-hmm. taking it? What's the yeah. set and setting? Just like mm-hmm. psychedelics, you, I would never be a proponent of psychedelics being like on the open market, people just buying it at a store. It's mm-hmm. too powerful for that. It needs to have some level of restriction because the power mm-hmm. is so big and mm-hmm. some are not like that. Honestly, you know, if I take an edible, I take 10 milligram. I mean, you know, I just watch a movie and start laughing a lot. I mean, it's honestly, it's hilarious. Yeah. You know, there's there's certain things that are more powerful Mm -hmm. knowing the ritual of where you are, who you're with, what time of day. I think sometimes people, they take drugs haphazardly and -hmm. they don't think about the ritual or the Mm -hmm. ceremony related Mm -hmm. to it. But we have this strong thing against this. Like every we cannot just destroy your mind. Like, yeah. And you know, when you're having to take something in secret, your buddy's like, Hey, look what I scored. And you're like, yeah, yeah. what is this? What is in this? What He's like, this? I don't know. I just know it falls into this category. Yeah. Of drug. Yeah. That's yeah. unsafe. And yeah, you might have a bad experience. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really interesting. This sort of like, like sort of like communal experience that you're keying in on. I'm thinking about, um, so we talk about opium and the opium wars mm. a lot in the podcast, which is where a lot of drug history scholars would sort of formally date the beginning of the global war on drugs. This with the opium wars between Britain and China in the late 19th century. But um, the thing is, is that opium was sort of like a status symbol, um, you know, in China. And opium is not like endemic to China, like the British did sort of like bring over opium yeah. and then it became an established cultural practice but it was a like you know you're hosting people you want to show off a little bit you invite them to smoke opium with you it's not completely unlike hookah like a huge right. hookah lounge you know and then as it sort of as we see an increase in asian migration um to california to the americas i mean the entire west coast of the americas um and people are really upset <laughs> that people who don't look like them are coming to this country and they're really upset that they have these sort of separate cultural enclaves and stores and they're separate that there's this luxury good that's coming in that isn't being taxed um and that's when you sort of start to see the demonization of opium um in the united states anyways and it's even connected i mean all countries have a different history. In Japan, for example, Japan is also a nation that historically has presented itself as a country that doesn't use drugs. They're against drugs. Hmm. And the deeper history behind that stance is that they saw what happened to China during the Opium Wars, which was complete economic subjugation at the hands of the Brit of the British. Japan wants to make a power play for itself. It wants it aspires to global power. And in doing so, it is trying to communicate to Western nations, like, hey, we don't use opium. You can't bring us to our knees by flooding us with opium. And also, hey, we're actually more like you, the white man, because we don't use drugs. So, you know, you should invite us to the party. You should invite us to the table. 
So it's really interesting to see, to I think kind of start with the like idea of like drug prohibition and then look at different geographic and cultural context over time and sort of see how like each country's specific sort of motivations and goals affects yeah. the way that that plays out on the ground over time. And that's what we're doing in the podcast. And that's um, just prologued season two. You can mm -hmm. find us wherever you, you get your podcast. But my goal with the podcast is to introduce this idea of a global war on drugs. Because legalizing drugs in the United States isn't just going to fix this sort of historic attachment to drug prohibition yeah. for a couple of reasons, one of which I just described with the example of Japan. There are other countries that have bought into a drug war for their own interests. But also the United States in sort of the mid 20th century, so like the 1950s and onwards, invested an incredible amount of time and money to sort of instituting its anti-drug mindset at a regional and international level. So not only is there a war on drugs in the United States to contend with, I believe the Organization of American States, which is sort of the Western hemisphere, mm -hmm. like um, Pan-American organization, I believe that they've made resolutions on drugs. And let me tell you, the United Nations has one hell of a drug control apparatus hmm. so there's sort of like all these different layers that we have to think about and i think the united states is on the hook for all of that so my other fear in addition to the drug war just sort of reconfiguring itself is that we americans will forget that as we have a tendency to do, yes, we do. <laughs> you know once once we are not actually physically present in a place anymore um we're like okay we're done. <laughs> um, yeah. So I kind of think that like, if we fix the issue of drug prohibition in the United States, or if we, we address drug prohibition, you know, we also have to think next about sort of the, the foreign ramifications yeah. of that campaign that we sponsored. And I think that we are responsible for undoing that, especially because when we're talking about legalizing marijuana, we're not talking about legitimizing the marijuana trade with Mexico. You know, there's a hell of a lot of poor people in Mexico who cultivate drug plants because they have no other option. Right. So it's just, it's another way that, you know, sort of drugs and a drug industry might be rewritten to exclude people is that mm. we really like to make so-called third world countries, also known as the global South, give us very valuable things for as cheap as possible. And I think that if we're not thinking about these questions at a sort of more international perspective, we're going to prolong that. And we're just going to keep sort of rewriting colonialism, imperialism, neo-colonialism into our world as we know it. Yeah, you gotta watch that documentary. I'm serious. Like, I it's, really it's gonna want resonate to. I'm with totally you. Going to. I'm so glad you told time. me that. Yeah, I'm really excited. <laughs> you speak just like Raul Peck does. He has this big gravelly voice. You don't sound like that, obviously, but like you're just the way you're explaining i'm like you this is like a must watch for you this is like yeah yeah i'll things. have to i mean yeah it doesn't talk about drugs per se but i think it, it makes the similar point is that mm -hmm. and essentially colonialism imperialism are being repeated just in different ways mm -hmm. and in many ways they become more sophisticated and not mm -hmm. overtly 
uh, discriminatory, like to your face, but it becomes more sophisticated and how it's how it's done. Yeah, you know, it sounds yeah. like drugs could become that same version. Of yes. That. In some ways, they already have. I mean, if you look at the 1930s, did you watch um, what was the movie called? I think it was called Billie Holiday versus the United States. No, on Hulu. No. Highly recommend it. It okay. was an excellent movie by itself, but um, it talks a lot about Harry J. Anslinger, who is sort of the first drug czar of the United States. Um, he was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which is the predecessor to the DEA. Yeah. Um, he was all about going after people who use drugs, specifically Black people, yeah. specifically Black people who maybe were communists, you know? Right. So um, I think it was like, it's one of the best, I, it's one of the most recent and best sort of um, modern day portrayals of these ideas, but like drugs are never just about drugs, <laughs> especially yeah. when you think about sort of the FBN, um, is where sort of this formalization, this institutionalization of these American anti-drug ideals begins. You got the head guy planting drugs because he didn't like black people That's and he crazy. didn't like communists. And you're telling me that you think that those ideas still do not affect the way that we think about drugs. We definitely don't talk about it in that language. Yeah. No. But I mean, as we know, black people are disproportionately prosecuted for drug crimes. True. often just for possession crimes so it followed through even though in many ways people get really really good at talking about these things in sort of neutral terms in terms of freedom and choice and america and whatever that's supposed to mean <laughs> speak english you know yeah. <laughs> so yeah yeah, that's fascinating. That's really fa I mean, that's why I wanted to talk to you because it's a different way of looking at these mm -hmm. things, because a lot of people, they look at drugs purely as the drug, the mind altering state. They don't mm -hmm. think about the, the deeper seated issue with, yeah. it, you know, and I think that's important in any topic that you dive underneath the, 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 the tip of the iceberg is just what you see. It's not this, the stuff underneath is what you really need to be focusing yeah on. yeah absolutely and sometimes like it is like kind of weird like if you do like it's just a simple thought exercise if you just kind of sit and you're like okay why do I think drugs are bad or even why do I think people who right. use drugs are bad right, right? that's or, so that's I perfect right back from there you know well I mean they're dangerous they do crimes they look different than me, either in terms of their economic status, maybe they're homeless, in terms of their skin color, in terms of their culture, the language that, that they speak. And, you know, I think that, um, <laughs> I think that um, we just have so many layers up in our country yeah. that sort of divide us. And I haven't figured out for myself yet why. I don't think I can really articulate yet why people are so deeply invested in distinguishing themselves from others. Like, why is it mm. so massively important that you look at me and you don't see a drug user? Like, yeah. why do I need to look so different from someone who uses drugs? Like, you know? 
Um, yeah. Like I just, it's, it's just kind of like these layers um, that I, from my very political mindset, I think mm. are kind of just in place to further divide us. Um, but I think when you come at it from a more compassionate response and also just ask the question, okay, like why do people need to use drugs? Why do people need to sell drugs? I think that you kind of mm. arrive at a really uncomfortable uh, conclusion about our economic reality in this country. I remember I, I listened to the episode with um, the DEA agent. I'm mm. sorry, sorry, I don't remember your name. Larry Forletta. Really, yeah, there <laughs> we go. Um, you guys said a lot like follow the money and that's totally true follow the money because often i think you actually end up in places where there's not very much money <laughs> um you know um so i just i have a lot of thoughts about this. no it's good i want to hear you know like just like when he was saying it i knew it was kind of kind of be maybe maybe a more conservative aspect of it and mm -hmm. i think kind of his shot at like medical marijuana was his more progressive aspect of it and which mm -hmm. was interesting you know being in it for a long time but it's it's you can get a perspective from somebody who's worked and essentially mm -hmm. trying to stop drug trades yeah versus someone who's studying it and looking mm -hmm. at the global aspect of it and how it affects people who have uh, less means yeah and I think there's value in all of it and discussing yeah. it but to me like that really hit me and said well what if you just sat down and said why do people use drugs or why do people sell drugs and go backwards from there? Who does that? Who actually sits down and does that? That's the problem. People aren't willing to sit there and go, well, let me think about that actually. Mm -hmm. And this is why also, I mean, it's been quite a couple of years in terms of politics in this country. And I've always, even though I'm someone that probably is would be considered progressive or even left of progressive, mm -hmm. I never want to lose sight of the humanity, right, yeah. of a person, no matter their political identification. So I have found a lot, myself a lot this year, just being like, why does this person not want to get vaccinated? Yeah. Why does this, why is this person like so afraid? Like what is, what yeah. is happening? Because there's something happening here and it's based on our different experiences it's just how we think about those experiences that are really different. And those experiences are valid. They need to be talked about. And yeah. I also, but I also, I think when we get to the solutions part, um, I'm always going to side with the more compassionate people yeah. solution yeah. that tries to find an answer to, you know, I mean, there's so many, really, I feel like for, for a lot of years, we've sort of been like, what is the answer to growing drug use in the United States? The answer is stop drugs. But really, once you move beyond that, once you move beyond that giant loud wall, there's all these other different doors. That's right. You know, of possibilities and doors that hopefully with pathways that kind of come together all in one big hallway yeah. and lead us towards some holistic solution to this question. And it's not hard. I mean, it's not easy complicated i'm not gonna pretend like don't like i have all the answers i'm not gonna pretend like someone's gonna come at me and be like well what happens when this what happens with that and i'm yeah. like it's a great point i didn't think about that um yeah but i i will always side on the compassionate people first people deserve things because they are people yeah. solution
I love that. I mean, I think that's a great place to end this thing off. I mean, yeah. it's just a nice wrapping up a bow on the conversation. Sweet. And you are just lovely to talk to. Brianna. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, you're full of energy and joy. And these are my favorite people, just the joy oh, joyful I'm so humans. I'm so glad. I'm so yes. glad. It's really just like a... Someone wants to talk to me about my nerdy shit. Yes, like, so cool. I do. I um, <laughs> I just got done right before you. I had a conversation with two scientists. They have a podcast called Science with Millennials. And one's a chemist and one's a social scientist. And it's all it. about like making science applicable and more um, palatable for people. You yeah. know, and they're very young people. And it's just like, I want to I want to learn. In the end, I just want to learn about yeah. what's going on. And I yeah. want to be open to the to different ideas. Mm-hmm. So, yes, absolutely. Um, can I sneak in a couple of, of little um, um, uh, what's plugs? Okay, do so, a plug. Um, so if you want to hear more from me, if you want to hear why I think the things that I do, please, please subscribe to Prologued. That's P-R-O-L-O-G-U-E-D, Prologued. <laughs> Good job. Wherever you get your podcast, season two is coming at the end of September. Um, Six episodes with 10 drug history experts talking about uh, about the global war on drugs and what that means and, you know, how the drug war played out in Afghanistan and Japan at, during World War II and the United States in the 1930s and during the opium wars. It's really cool. And I think it's a great way to sort of expand um, our minds on the topic of the war on drugs. Um, it's produced, I, I work, I'm the assistant editor for a um, online publication called Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. And if you wanna find more historically informed analysis of present day issues, definitely check us out. Um, Origins.osu.edu. We're also at Origins OSU on all major social media platforms. Um, If you really like me, (laughs) you can find me on Twitter at Brianna Mendoza. Um, and it was just such a delight to be here. Thank you for letting me ramble about <laughs> this really small topic that I know a ton about. So thank that's you. beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Brianna Mendoza, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone. At Kroger, we work with local farms right in our own backyard to bring you food that's fresher than fresh. From homegrown watermelon that makes your mouth water to crisp corn picked right around the corner. Come pick out some yourself. Because shopping for local produce should be as easy as shopping at your local Kroger. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Ram Power Days is going on now with our most powerful lineup of trucks ever. Hurry in and don't just feel the power, own it. Right now, financing gets 6800 in total values on the 2022 Ram 1500 Bighorn Quad Cab. Don't miss this great offer. Visit Ram.com to find your local Ram dealer today. Total values include combined cash allowance and 2300 Bighorn Level 2 package value. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 1031 22.